As we make our way through life, one of the realities that all of us have to deal with is uncertainty. You, you, you make a decision and you don't always know how it's going to go. So then the issues aren't always clear, then that decision leads to another decision and then another decision and then another decision. And before you know it, you have a pattern, you have a path that has developed and usually you don't know how it's going to turn out. That's what it means to be human. One of the advantages of being a little older is that you have more experience with those series of decisions and you can kind of look back over your life and you can stitch together sort of the plan that was emerging. In that moment, you may not have understood how that one decision was part of a bigger series of decisions that were going to shape your life, either positively or negatively. If you're a Christian, the Bible promises you that God is working all things out for his good. He has a plan for your life. And the Bible promises that God is going to work that plan in order for him to receive glory and in order for your benefit. But the challenge is, is while that promise is true, there are often things that you're dealing with every single day that you just don't know how they all fit together. To be a human being, and even to be a Christian, means that often you don't see things clearly when they're right in front of you. It takes time, providence, and in the case of John chapter 12, it takes 2,000 years for us to look back into this story, and we know what's happening as Jesus makes his way into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, but the disciples, the religious leaders, and the crowd that said Hosanna had no idea who he really was. Oh, they thought they did. They all had a misunderstanding of what Jesus was going to do, and for that matter, who he is. In John chapter 12 today, we're going to see the way in which the triumphal entry of Jesus is actually a picture of the irony of how often the suffering Savior is misunderstood. And as we lean into this text today, what I want you to do is to place yourself into this passage and avoid the tendency to look with a dim eye on the people who are in this passage and don't assume that you would have responded any differently. Because the fact of the matter is, is that humans are prone to miss what's right in front of them, especially when it comes to Jesus. Today I wanna to show you two things. First, the way in which this king was misunderstood, and secondly, how he reshapes an understanding of who he is by virtue of being a suffering savior. So first, we see this misunderstood king. Look at verse 12. The next day, the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What feast is this? This is the feast of Passover. This passage begins the last week of Jesus' life. John 12, all the way to John chapter 20, is an explanation of all of the events that happened during this festival. This Passover festival was enormously important, not only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it was also important in the life of Israel. A little background. If you were to read Exodus chapter 4 through Exodus chapter 14, you would find that this Exodus event became the greatest moment of deliverance in Israel history. This Exodus defined them as a people, and Passover was the celebration where they remembered what God had done, 
and they looked forward to how God was going to do it again. So Passover is sort of the crux between God's previous works and their hopes that God would repeat it again. To remind you, the people of Israel were stuck in bondage in Egypt. It was the major superpower of that day. It looked absolutely hopeless. And then God sends Moses, who does signs and wonders. He tells Pharaoh, let God's people go. And when Pharaoh refuses, God takes the gods of Egypt and turns them on them, pulling them out of bondage with a a mighty display of his power, even with the blood that is poured on and painted on the doorposts as the firstborn child in every household is killed. And by this great moment of deliverance, God yanks his people out, takes them to the brink of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and all of his armies come to attack Israel. God divides the Red Sea. They walk through. Pharaoh goes into the sea. God collapses the sea. And Israel wins a major victory as God becomes their deliverer, and they become his people. So the Exodus event is the mark upon God's people that they belong to God and that God can deliver his people even from oppressors when it looks like it's impossible. So when these Jewish people come to Jerusalem, they are coming in the context of both a spiritual celebration and also a national celebration. They are looking for a new Moses, one that was promised, one who would do signs and wonders, one who would get the oppressors off of their back and restore Israel to its glory days. So this moment, this is a really, really loaded scenario. The text says that they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they take these these palm branches. Sometimes um, commentators think that they brought them with them for the celebration. Other times they may have been around the Jerusalem area. The point, though, is that these palm branches had a significance regarding their symbolism. About 200 years earlier, that palm branch became a, a national symbol when a particular ruler named Simon Maccabees drove out Syrian forces from Jerusalem around 140 BC, he was honored as people sang songs about him, sang songs to him, and waved palm branches. When Israel created their own currency during a season of insurrection, they had to decide what symbols they were gonna put on their coins, and what do you think they put on their coins? A palm branch. You could think of that symbol in our own culture like the symbol of an eagle in our own society. So if you go to a Colts game and they start to play the national anthem, if you've seen that moment where sometimes they release an actual eagle and it flies around the stadium, I mean, it's it's an amazing moment. And it's amazing not just because it's an incredible looking bird, because that bird has symbolism beyond its majesty. Or you could think of it as the the chant, USA, USA, like that's said at a hockey game at the Olympics or at some other sort of rally. This moment has that kind of national and even political symbolism. Palm branches pointed towards a nationalistic hope that was embedded in the coming Messiah. What's more, they quote Psalm 118 where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they add a little extra, even the king of Israel. The term Hosanna means give salvation now. It's a a cry of deliverance. A cry 
of nationalistic hope. So when Jesus is hailed in this way, as a crowd goes out to reach, reach to him, the crowd goes to take their palm branches and wave over him, and as they begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you need to feel the tension of this moment and what this would mean in that society. Let me give you just an illustration. Imagine if it was breaking news today that some congressman in Washington, D.C., found a 1,000 people to line Pennsylvania Avenue. They had flags, and the person walked down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue as a congressman while they played the song Hail to the Chief, a song that's reserved only for the President of the United States. That's the kind of loaded symbolism that we have here. The crowd, by their actions, are signaling that their national deliverer has arrived. They're looking, expecting someone to deliver them from Roman oppression. They believed that the greatest need of Israel in this moment was a military or political leader who could liberate them from Rome. They hated Rome. They want Rome out. And therefore, Jesus now could be the one that finally could restore Israel to its glory days. The problem is they didn't see who Jesus was. Now look at verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then the text says, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, to be clear, this is not something that's said at the triumphal entry. John is pulling this Old Testament prophecy and overlaying it on this story so that you as the reader will interpret this moment correctly. He's taking this Old Testament text that talks about a ruler who's not coming as a military leader. He's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey. He's coming in humility. He's coming to bring peace. And if you were to study the text in Zechariah chapter 9, you would find that this leader is coming not only to bring peace, but to extend it to the whole world. And it even goes so far as to say, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free. So you can see why John quotes this passage. He wants to reframe what you as the reader would see so that you know what's really going on here, even though in this moment, the crowds, the religious leaders, and even the disciples, they misunderstand who Jesus really is. Look at verse 16. He presses it to help us realize that it's not just those who are far away from Jesus, but even those close to him who don't understand him. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So apparently, sometime later, after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the disciples finally begin to stitch together with a little bit of history. Oh, you remember that triumphal entry when he came into Jerusalem? This is what was happening. We didn't even realize it at the time. And so John wants you to see the irony of this moment. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So what do we see here? We see that the religious leaders are threatened by him. We see that the crowd is expecting, and what they wanted was a political king, 
The, the Lazarus crowd, they're just enamored that Jesus was able to raise somebody from the dead. And what's more, the disciples didn't even understand who he was. Now, the question is this, how did all of these people miss it? There's a number of reasons why. But you could summarize it with this singular reality. They missed Jesus because they didn't understand what they really needed. They missed Jesus because they wanted something else. And before you and I become too judgmental, before you and I look at them and say, how could they have missed that? We need to appreciate how often we incorrectly evaluate what we really need. We need to consider how often we don't see things as clearly as we should. The religious leaders, they simply want Jesus to go away. They want him to stop making waves, to stop creating controversy and division. They don't want to lose any of their power, so he, he's got to go. The crowds believe that their greatest need is to have Rome off their backs. They think their biggest need is a political one. They need to have Israel return to her glory days. They need Jesus to fix the country. The disciples, they, they not only think that Jesus is a great teacher, but they think he is their ticket to greatness. It was just a, a few weeks earlier this I always read with a bit of a smirk when the mother of John and James came to Jesus and asked that those two, her two sons could be given prominent position in Jesus' kingdom. I know how that would have played in my high school. Like, get your mom out of here, right? Can you imagine that moment? Could my son sit in your kingdom? And the disciples are like, what? Matt, Luke 22 tells us that it's during this week that the disciples argue. They argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They see Jesus coming into the city. They hear the crowds chanting, and they think, awesome cabinet spot. <laughs> They're like, we are going to be heirs along with the king. Friends, the story of our humanity is the perpetual misunderstanding of what's really important. And if we're honest... If we're really honest, sometimes we even try to use Jesus to get that thing that we want. We don't want to go to hell, so we pray a prayer, but Jesus never takes control of our life. We want to have our needs met, so we join a church. We want our spouse to change, so we get a Christian counselor. We want our roommate to be easier to live with, so we invite her to church. We want to find a spouse, so we join that small group. We want our kids to not go off the rails, so we get them in youth group. We want our career or our business to be blessed, so we pray before meetings. We want our political people in office, so we find spiritual justifications for our positions. Listen, don't get me wrong. Eternity, attending church, a good marriage, godly kids, having a good roommate, finding a spouse, having a career, growing your business, and political positions, they're all important. They're not bad. That is, unless 
you believe or live as if that's the only thing that you live for and you try to get Jesus to give you what you really want and it's something greater than him. And what's crazy about this text is that everyone misunderstood him. Why? Because they lived in the first century? No. Because their lust for something else beside Jesus is part of the brokenness of our humanity. John wants you to see this crazy contrast. So first we see Jesus that's misunderstood. Here's the second thing. We then see the suffering Savior. In verses 20 to 22, we learn that there are a group of Greeks who now are there at the feast. These are outsiders. They're not Jews. They come, they find Philip. It may be that his Greek name or the town with which he was from may have inclined them to think that he would be open to their appeal to see Jesus, which they request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip goes and tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip then go and tell Jesus. And then in verse 23, the entire narrative now shifts and becomes incredibly clear. Jesus makes a stunning statement. He says, in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I would imagine the disciples heard this and they thought, yes! The time has come for Jesus to be glorified. We're riding into Jerusalem. We are going to take over. Rome's going to get off of the back of the people. We're going to reign. He's going to be king. Dead people are going to come out of their tombs. Jesus is unstoppable. We have hitched our wagon to the right leader. This is going to be amazing. And then Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. You just said, it's the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now you just said, like a piece of seed or a seed planted in the earth, we have to embrace death. Jesus uses a farming illustration that would have been familiar. In order for plants to grow, you have to plant seeds. In doing so, Jesus foreshadows what his mission is. He, like the grain of wheat, must die so that his mission would bear much fruit. And in the midst of this triumphal entry, just feel how strange this would have sounded. And for that matter, if you can take a step back and understand the nature of the culture in that day, this was a very, very odd thing to say. Because Rome lived by this mantra, might makes right. You don't win by dying, you win by conquering, by slaughtering. To the victor goes the spoils. And here is Jesus, though, who upends all of that. He comes to Jerusalem not as a king who will conquer politically or militarily, but as a savior who can save people from their greatest issue, namely their sins. His mission is to make clear that the way to victory will be through a humiliating death. Church, part of the reason why this seems so odd is our inability to discern what is really wrong or how to make it right. Part of what Jesus does here is to confound the wise. He humiliates the proud, he heals the broken. And what you find here is this. And this is the singular most important point 
of my entire message, it is this, that the way of Jesus is profoundly countercultural at its core. Following Jesus is countercultural. There is a way that our culture moves, a way that humanity assesses value, a way that humanity determines how you get ahead, how, what, 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 what's really powerful. And being a follower of Jesus usually means doing the exact opposite of what everyone else in the culture is doing in terms of how they think and how they live. Some of you need to just ponder very carefully what I just said because in the next week, you're gonna have an opportunity where the tide has shifted in your business, the tide has shifted in a conversation with somebody, the situation's gonna appear in your marriage or in a conflict with your roommate, and you're gonna have to remember this moment right now when you hear the words of the scriptures that say, unless the kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. In other words, your marriage is not gonna be saved unless you die and let Jesus take over. You're gonna have to die to wanting to be the first person asked, for forgiveness. Instead, you're gonna have to die to what you want in order that life can come through you. You're gonna have to die to what you expected life to be like. Die to your stranglehold of your possessions or your agenda. Because at the end of the day, when Jesus comes in, he takes over, and if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord of anything. And then Jesus doesn't apply this just to himself. He applies it to them. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father, the father will honor him. Jesus is talking about something. I I would love to have seen the disciples' face when he says this. What do you mean, loses his life? If I love it, hates my life, I find it. What he's saying here is that being a disciple of Jesus means embracing the same mission that Jesus had. That the call for that kernel of wheat to die doesn't simply apply to him, it extends to all those who would call themselves Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this may seem like really weird teaching, but it's actually good news. You see, the people who were baptized, many of them had a shirt on. It says, God is holy and I am not. And at first, you might look at that and go, that's kind of offensive. I mean, you're saying that God is righteous and I'm not. And the thing is, is at first, you might think that's right, that's unhelpful. At first, you might think that's bad news. It's actually really helpful news that the Bible diagnoses who we really are and what our problem is. The Bible tells us over and over and over that the problem isn't external to us, it's internal. And that's really helpful if you're here today and not yet a Christian, and it's incredibly hopeful, and here's why. Because the problems in your life and the reason why things are broken are not because of just your background or your upbringing or your context or your city or your job or your relationship, and you can bounce from all of those things, and they keep blowing up and blowing up and blowing up. And the reason is, is the real problem in your life is staring at you in the mirror. And the Bible says when you come to realize that, there's actually freedom as you give up the rights of your life and say, Jesus, I need you to come and take over my life because I am broken at the core and in ways I don't even fully understand. 
And if, friend, there's something within you that says, I actually believe that, you need to know that God by his spirit is breaking through a heart that would not have heard or received that unless God by his spirit was softening you to that reality because the bias of humanity is to always misunderstand Jesus and to want all of the wrong things continually over and over and over. And the message and the reason we sing about Jesus is because he, like in the Exodus, comes and rescues people, not from Egypt, but he comes to rescue us from the bias bondage of our self-made prisons. For those of you who are Christians, this upside-down logic of Jesus is how we are called to live because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel so that the Bible says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How is it yours in Christ Jesus? How is it yours in the person and work of Christ? It is yours because Jesus gives the greatest example of what it means to die, and he shows us the way in which humiliation results in glorification, brokenness connects to God's exaltation, and death ends up producing life. Such that the Apostle Peter would say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So the message over and over and over is if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you want to protect yourself, you're going to lose it. And instead what it becomes is this glorious, trusting perspective where you take the mind and the heart of Jesus and remind yourself if the kernel of wheat doesn't fall on the ground, if it doesn't die, it's going to remain alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. And to be a follower of Jesus means that you walk through life with a regular mindset of Jesus, help me to die, help me to die, help me to die, help me to die. And when you fear, but they're going to take advantage of you, and they're just going to do this and that and this and that and this and that, you come back to the beauty of the gospel and what it has meant and how it has lived and what it did in the person and work of Jesus, and that becomes the way in which you frame your life. I'm telling you, there's some of you this week, you're going to remember this conversation, this sermon, when you are standing in front of somebody and they are wicked and nasty and you want to fire back the way that everybody else does. And you're going to have to remind yourself, I've got to die. I've got to die. I've got to die. I've got to be Christ-like. I've got to be like Jesus. The religious rulers, they were threatened by Christ. The crowds, they tried to use him. The disciples... They misunderstood him. And now here we are with 2,000 years behind us, and we can see, we can see how they miss Jesus. But the question is not did they miss Jesus? The question is to what extent are we still missing Jesus? Lest we be too hard on them, lest we be too confident in ourselves, we should ask, do I really understand Jesus? Do I want Jesus in my life? 
Do I really live like Jesus? Because the way of Jesus sounds like this. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Completely counter-cultural to everything that's baked into the world, which makes Christians who really live this way, a stunning display of the otherworldly ethic that makes people wonder, what motivates you? And the answer is, a savior who died for me, who has become my life. And that's how you understand Jesus as the suffering savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in so many areas of our lives, this concept needs to be brought to bear today in ways that, Lord, I don't fully know, but I know that you do, and in ways that maybe even in the hearing of this message aren't fully even understood. So, Lord, would you help us to uncurl our fingers from the things that we would just say, I don't want to die to this, Lord. I don't want to die to this. Lord, help us not to be named among those who resist you. Help us to be those who receive your grace as we embrace humility. And thank you that the gospel becomes the basis of understanding all of this. God, help us. Lord, help those today who are not yet Christians that today might be the day where they acknowledge their need. They've seen it so clearly in baptism. God, draw men and women, we pray, to become Christ followers on this day. So Lord, we appeal to you. We ask this in your name, Jesus.